hear about young people involved in the Lord's work because I don't think there's any force more powerful in the world than young people who are totally sold out to Jesus Christ and serving Him. And we need to see, we need to see more of that. It's an awesome thing. One of the things I've discovered about those ministry opportunities over the years is that one of the great lessons you can learn is just because someone is less physically fortunate than you are doesn't mean that they're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God and doesn't mean that they're entitled to less benefits or blessings. And in fact, is very often they have stuff to teach us. And uh, I've discovered that being in other countries and sharing the gospel and finding out how remarkable it was. And as I want us to look tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, and before I use my opening uh, little story here to make a point about how busy we are and how crowded our lives are, I'm going to ask Richard if you'll come up here for just a minute. I'm not going to ask Richard to share the details of his mission trip because he'd have to tell you about outhouses where the lizards came out as he was going in. Um, and sleeping at 30 degrees weather at night and 100 degree uh, during the day working and chopping. But one thing I want to ask him to do, and I want you to listen to this, and folks in my Sunday school class have heard this already. I just want him to describe for you a Navajo Indian worship service. And I want you to listen. These are people that don't have indoor plumbing. In fact, is he came back with a whole new appreciation for that very thing. But, but uh, let him tell you what a Nav- Navajo not Navajo, but Navajo, I've been corrected, worship service sounded like? Well, uh, a uh, typical Navajo service is done in what's called Navajo time, which means that uh, while they say it's, it's going to last about an hour and a half, Navajo time usually has about a five-hour buffer on either side. So the, the, the um, tent meetings that um, we were holding... Uh, the revival tent meetings we were holding usually lasted about three and a half hours. And the first hour was just singing. We, we got up and, and l- singing all the old gospel hymns in Navajo is an interesting experience. It, it's, it's quite, you know, it, it's, it's actually a lot of fun. But uh, so after the first hour of singing in another language, then we, uh, then was testimony time, and in testimony time, for the next hour and a half, anyone can get up and say, give a testimony, sing a song, do whatever they want to do, and just, you know, just get up there and really just let God work through them. And then after testimony time, they always have two different pastors come up and preach a sermon, and the sermon is translated from English to Navajo, which means that it's twice as long as it would normally be anyway. So... The sir, uh, one of the shorter evenings that we had started at seven and went till about eleven thirty, and I, I was just stunned by the, the closeness to God that these people have and the simplicity of the way that they worship God because these people would get up and they'd sing and they'd sing with or without a piano accompaniment and they just they would be really singing from their heart and. A lot of them, you know, they couldn't really carry a tune to save their life, but they loved God and they loved singing because they were praising God, and that's all that mattered to them. And it wasn't just about show or or putting on a performance. So, there you go. Yeah. yeah, the interesting thing about that is, is you know, we we have our air conditioners and our easy chairs, and 
uh, our remote controls, and some of us have four or five remote controls and can't ever find the one that we want when we need it. And yet, uh, you know, by the end of church service, we're doing this number. You know, and it, it's amazing that people that have nothing really enjoy God. I wonder sometimes if things don't get in the way of our relationship with the Lord. And uh, in fact, there's an interesting study they did at the National Institute for Mental Health a number of years ago. They built a nine-foot by nine-foot cage and that could comfortably house 160 mice. And they put eight mice in the cage and they let the mice population grow uh, unheated by any external factors for two and a half years. And uh, they gave them all the food, all the water, kept things clean. And uh, in two and a half years, that cage grew from eight mice to 2,200 mice, a cage that was designed to hold 160. They had plenty of food and water. They were kept disease-free. Everything other than natural aging was eliminated as a cause for death. And when the population reached its peak, the mice began to exhibit some interesting characteristics. The adults form cliques or groups of about 12 in each group. And in each one of these cliques, the different mice, each mouse had a different social function within the group. The males who normally were to protect their territory instead became incredibly passive and they withdrew from leadership. The, the female mice, though, exhibited highly aggressive tendencies and they, ticked it, they tend tended to kick out their young very early in life and wouldn't let them remain in the group anymore. The young found themselves without a group that would take them no place in society and they became increasingly self-indulgent and they only groomed and fed and slept themselves and had very little to do with the other mice. And the entire mouse society became disrupted so that at the end of five years, though there was not a single thing wrong in terms of food supply or water or anything else, the entire population of mice died. And what the scientists were hoping to ascertain is what happens to humans when you get them in crowded rat race kind of conditions and fighting rush hour traffic and dealing with all the stress. And, and isn't it amazing? Because while we live in the middle of millions of people and where we've become increasingly isolated and we've become increasingly uh, in our own little cliques and groups and we don't really get out and get to know people anymore and men by and large in American society are no longer the spiritual leaders of their family. That's why there's always more women in a church than there are men because men aren't stepping up the plate to do what they're supposed to. And, and uh, kids are being forced to leave home earlier and they're treated as inconveniences. It's kind of like I raised you to get out of here so your mom and I if you, your mom and I are even still together, you know, that we can get on and we can enjoy our life. And young people now are becoming increasingly self-indulgent and self-focused, which is why an opportunity like this for them to go focus on the needs of others is so very important uh, for our young people to have opportunities like that. We're losing touch with our world and we're on a self-destructive path just like those mice. And because we're in an increasingly impersonal world and because things are, are increasingly hectic, it's imperative that we learn what the real focus of the gospel ministry is and how we carry it out in this world that's a rat race world. Now Paul writes to Timothy, who is a pastor left at a difficult church. He's left at the church at Ephesus. And he's trying to give him some encouragement and trying to help him maintain some focus because 
life does get hectic. Anybody else believe that? Yeah, life's hectic. It's easy to lose focus. Even when you're supposed to be focused on ministry, it's easy to lose focus about what's really important. And so Paul tells these things to Timothy. And so tonight I want us to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at the things that about the gospel ministry and how to maintain it. And, and the title of this sermon would be The Basis for the Gospel Ministry. The Basis for the Gospel Ministry. The first thing I want you to notice is that the gospel spreads by love. Look at verse 5 with me. We covered this before, but I want to refresh your memory on this verse. It says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. He says, Now the first thing, the goal, Paul tells Timothy, the goal of the gospel ministry, the main thing, and you know the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. The main thing, Timothy, is this. You've got to have love. The gospel can't spread unless we love others. Not only that, but the gospel can't spread unless we love one another because the world, Jesus said, would know that we were Christians by our love for one another. That's why it's important and it's imperative that we really have a Christian life based on love. Now, I want you to notice that he gives some qualifications for this. He, first of all, says, you know, well, Timothy, I want you to understand something. Doctrine is important. Let's never stray from this book. Let's never stray from its teaching. But doctrine isn't even the main thing. It's the love of Christ and sharing that love with others. That's the main thing. He didn't say, Timothy, you need to have a bunch of well-designed programs and, uh, because programs aren't the main thing. Love is the main thing. He didn't say, well, you've got to have a new building or you have to have new facilities or you have to have places to entertain and attract the world. He says, no, love is the main thing. He didn't say, well, you've got to have uh, this style of worship or this style of music or this kind of clothing or this many dinners on the grounds. He said, no, love is the main thing. And then he tells us three qualities to that love. He says, first of all, it's got to have a pure heart. It can't be hypocritical. He says you can't fake love. People know when you're faking love. He says you've got to have love that's free from hypocrisy, love that's free from wrong motives. It's not like I'm going to go out and act loving toward you so that you treat me right. He says you've got to have pure love. You've got to have charity out of a pure heart, a heart that's right with God. You know, the, the thing is, you know, Jesus once said to his disciples, he says, if you bring a gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother hath ought against thee. Leave your gift at the altar and first go be reconciled to your brother and then come again and offer your gift to the Lord. You know why? Because Jesus was trying to teach us that our relationship with the Father cannot be right if our relationship with each other is not right. But it's also true in Scripture that our relationship with each other can't be right if our relationship to God's not right. Both relationships, the horizontal and the vertical, have to be kept in, in proper balance and they both have to be correct and right and we've got to have a pure heart toward God for us to be able to love others otherwise we'll get ulterior motives when we love them then he says you've got to have a clear conscience he says you've got to have love without dissimulation you know most of the time when somebody does something that offends you you're supposed to go to that person one on one mano e mano and, and Jesus even said go to your offender Tell him his fault between thou and him alone, or thou and thee alone. You know, the, the, well, thou and him alone. That was right the first time. 
and, and tell them the fault one-on-one. -on -one. And if that doesn't work, then you take two or three. And if that doesn't work, then you tell it to the church. He says, you know, when someone offends us, we, ought, we need to go make things right. Because God always expects the more spiritual person to initiate restoration of lost fellowship. If you tick someone else off, it's your job to go ask forgiveness. Somebody else ticks you off, it's your job to go initiate a right relationship being restored there. Ye which are spiritual, Paul says in Galatians, restore such an one. If a brother's overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. But there's some times that sometimes the first thing you have to do is in public. There's a story in the book of Galatians that Paul says that when he went to Antioch, he withstood... Peter to the face because when the, Peter for a while there around Antioch he was sitting around with the, the Gentiles and he's eating with the Gentiles and he's eating Gentile food and God has freed him from this idea of everything ceremonially clean or ceremonially unclean and he's fellowship with Gentile believers but it says but when certain of the apostles came from James certain people came from the church at Jerusalem and they were Jewish believers Peter suddenly was like, oh, I better not sit with the Gentiles anymore. I better look Jewish while these people are here. So all of a sudden his diet changed, his company changed, his attitude toward Gentile Christians changed, and Peter says, there, or Paul says, therefore I withstood him to the face because for his dissimulation many were being carried away. You see, he, he was trying to say, Peter, I don't care if you are an apostle and you walked with Jesus for three years. The reality is... You can't be a hypocrite when it comes to loving people. You've got to be genuine. You've got to have a clear conscience with God. It's interesting. I looked, and, and over and over again, Paul mentions his conscience. In Acts, when he was giving his testimony, he says, Men and brethren, I lived in all good conscience until this day. And then he says, And hereunto I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. In Romans, he says, I saw the truth in, in Christ, and I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness. In fact, is this reference here in verse 5, if you're counting uh, from the beginning of Paul's writings through the end, this is the 13th time that he refers to his conscience. You've got to have a pure conscience. You can't love when you have a pure conscience. You've got to leave your gift at the altar and go get right. And then he says this last thing, an unfeigned or an unfaked faith. He says you can't fake your faith. It's interesting listening to Olivia talk about the fact that here were some people that were part of churches and they're up there there to work and some of them didn't know Christ. I thank God she had a chance to share a tract with him. Uh, you know, you can't fake your faith. And we shouldn't fake it. We've got to be real uh, because if our faith isn't real, then we don't have any real hope. And if we don't have any real hope, we're doing everything for selfish reasons. If our faith is real, then we need to live for others. I, I read a motto the other day. I like this motto. I think this ought to be the motto of every Christian at South Park Baptist Church, a servant, not a celebrity. You see, I, I think we need to get to the place that we're, we're, not, we're not vying for control of something and trying to push our own agenda, but we're all servants and we want what is God's agenda. It comes through God's authorities, and that's what we ought to do. We ought to be a servant and not a celebrity that's looking to say, well, I want to get patted on the back, and I want to get noticed. We need to be servants, not celebrities. We need to have an unfaked faith. We can't rely just on what we've done in the past either. There's a, there's a poem that drives me nuts grammatically, but I love it. It says, stow the past, God wants the present, wants a life that's free from sham, for your wasness doesn't matter if your isness really am. I like that. We need to be real. So the gospel spreads 
in love. But there's a second aspect about the gospel, and that is the gospel starts in the law. Now this will blow your mind because we don't usually think about that. We usually think when we share the gospel, all we should do is say, For God so loved the world. And that's a good message. It's a good message to say, But God commendeth His love toward us. But the gospel doesn't start there. Look at what Paul tells Timothy. He says in beginning in verse 6, from which some, talking about unfaked faith and talking about love, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. That means a lot of empty words. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. He says there's a lot of people who want to get up and teach and they don't have any comprehension of what they're talking about. They just like to be heard. And then he goes on, he says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now watch, he's going to give us a long list of sins. See if you fit in any of these. Lawless and disobedient. How many of you have ever been disobedient? Let me see your hand. Go ahead. The rest of you are liars. He says, he says the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners, for all have what? Sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're, we're all in this verse. He says, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, that means kidnappers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. Now I guarantee you, every single one of us just fell somewhere in that list, myself especially. And then, notice what he says. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. You know what Paul's saying? Part of the gospel is the law that tells us we're sinners. You can't have a gospel ministry without telling people the law of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and showing them that we fall short of it. If you just tell people about the love of God and they come to some mamby-pamby little conviction and they come and say, I ask Jesus into my heart as my Savior, I guarantee you if that's the way to come to Christ, they will not be faithful to the Lord. But when somebody realizes that their soul is dangling over the fiery pits of hell because they are a sinner and they must cry out to God and say, Save me! Then that person will grip onto Jesus Christ and will live in faithfulness because they know that there but for the grace of God they'd spend eternity in the lake of fire. We've got to make the law part of the gospel. The gospel starts in the law, but the gospel saves by grace. That's the next point. The gospel saves by grace. Look at verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I attained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now I don't want you to misunderstand verse 12. Because it would be easy to misunderstand it. Paul is not saying that God sat up there in heaven one day and looked down and said, Wow, I'm really impressed with Saul of Tarsus. says he looks like one faithful dude. I'm going to put him into the ministry. What he is saying with that word reckon is he is saying 
God wrote me into his heavenly ledger as a minister of Jesus Christ, knowing that his grace could keep me faithful. Now I want to tell you, I'm, I love Brother Henry and respect no one more than I do him. But God didn't look down on Galen Henry one day and say, well, there's somebody that's going to be faithful. I'm going to put him in the ministry. He is faithful because God gave him his grace. It is God's grace that keeps us from stumbling. It is God's grace that keeps those of us who are in ministry faithful, if we're to keep faithful. And when we cease to be faithful, it's not God's fault. It's because we rejected the grace of God in our lives. God's grace is sufficient for all of the ministry that God calls us to. Paul knew he could only minister in grace. He blasphemed Jesus. He had persecuted God's people. He hurt and murdered people, but God showed him mercy. Paul is not being arrogant here. He is being humble. He's not saying, look at me, I'm faithful. He's saying, I was everything wrong, but God through his grace wrote it on the books that I could be a faithful minister and he'd give me that grace and that privilege and that opportunity to serve him. Folks, don't ever think when you're serving the Lord, whether it's painting kindergarten furniture in Taiwan or, or building rooms for missionaries onto their house and with the Navajo Indians or, or you're working to, to paint and trim and re-roof houses for people that can't afford to do it themselves, don't ever think, look how special I am because of what I'm doing for God. Because apart from the grace of God, all your righteousness is just as filthy rags before the Lord. It's only, he is the only one that deserves the credit and the glory. In fact, is I've noticed something in Scripture. God uses people that fit three qualifications. They're the littlest, the least, and the last. It's the littlest, you know, the little servant girl that told Naaman, you need to go down and dip in the water if that's what, a, you know, or you need to go, you need to go talk to Elijah, do whatever he tells you. If you want to be healed of leprosy, you go talk to him. And, and Elijah said, well, go down and dip in the water. Folks, let me tell you something. She was a little one. But God used her in a great way. And then you remember the widow who gave her last two mites. That was the least anybody gave that day. And yet, God used it as an example for the wholehearted relationship we're to have for the Lord. And then, and then the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm the last of the apostles. I'm the chiefest of sinners. And yet God used him to write more books in the New Testament than any other one single person. God loves to use the littlest, the least, and the last. But we've got to get on our knees every day and humble ourselves so we are that person. And then he uses the gospel saves by grace. None of us have any reason to brag. And then the gospel, Brother Phil, will like this one, the gospel sings to God's praise. Look at verse 16 and 17. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, for a pattern to them which hereafter should believe on him to life everlasting. And there's, here's some words that are actually in a hymn, in our hymnal. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel, it starts in the law. It's spread by love. It starts in the law. It, it saves by grace, but it sings praise to God. Because you know what? The one and only reason you and I are able to fog up a mirror and the only reason we're here on this planet tonight is simply this. We are here to please God. It's what it says in Revelation 4.10. It's what it says. For he hath created all things and for his pleasure he created them. I'm here to please God. I'm here to praise God. And that's the 
aspect of the gospel. You know, I love this first verse, though. Look at verse 16 again. He says, how be it for this cause I have turned mercy. He says, here's why Jesus saved me. He says that he might show forth all long suffering in me for a pattern to those who should believe on him to life everlasting. You know what Paul was saying? Paul was saying, people are going to look at me and they're going to remember me as Saul of Tarsus. They're going to remember that I killed people, that I was angry, that I blasphemed Jesus Christ. And they're going to think, if God can save him, he can save anybody. And you know, I've known people that I thought, yeah, if God can use him, he can use me. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people who think that about me. You, you remember the old poem? I don't know if you've ever seen this poem, but I remember a poem that really influenced me as a kid. It was up on the wall of the Jacksonville Daily Progress where my mother worked as a bookkeeper. It says, I dreamed I died the other night, and heaven gates swung wide. With kindly grace, St. Peter ushered me inside. And there to my astonishment stood those I'd known on earth, people I had judged and deemed of little worth. Indignant words rose to my lip, but never were set free, for on every face there was a stunned surprise. Not one had expected me. <laughs> you know what? There's some people that you don't know it, but God can use them. I still remember a profoundly retarded young man that went to a visitor in a church where I was associate pastor during the invitation. We knew he was a visitor because he was the only person not a pastor there that was wearing a suit. And he went over to this fellow and he says, Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? And the man was so shocked by someone who was obviously retarded coming over and saying that to him right in the middle of the invitation. He just said, No! And the young man says, well, go to hell then. That's not a technique I recommend. But you know what? That man got saved that night. Because God can use the littlest, the least, and the last. It's an amazing thing. Well, one last thing, and that is that the gospel is shipwrecked by compromise. There is one thing that will cause South Park Baptist Church to cease to be an effective gospel Baptist church to carry forth the gospel ministry. And if you look at these last two verses, or last three verses, verses 18 through 20, he tells you what the problem is. He says, but shun, excuse me. He says, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by, that thou by them mightest war a good wherefore, holding faith and a good conscience, there it is again, which some having put away concerning faith, talking about putting away their good conscience, have made shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Compromise will destroy our effectiveness in the ministry of the gospel to others. And there's several kinds of compromise going on here. The first compromise is a compromise in Christian doctrine. Now, love is the most important thing, but folks, doctrine is too. I am thankful that I have a pastor that preaches the Word of God as inerrant and infallible. And I will have to tell you that in six years here, I've maybe heard three things that I thought I disagreed with the pastor on, he changed one on one of them. I changed on one of them. We're still up for the jury on the other one. <laughs> because he told me something I had never thought of before. And it's still bothering me. I look at it, I still got a note in my Bible every time I read it. I think, man, he looks like he's right, but I just don't like that. 
But you know something? I'm so glad that we are in doctrinal agreement. That's so very important. But look, we know a little bit about Hymenaeus. He's only mentioned a little few places in Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 17, he's mentioned as a dangerous man. It says this about him in 2 Timothy 2.17. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker. That's a cancer. He says it's like a cancer in a church to listen to somebody like this. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus? who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So one thing we know is wrong. Hymenaeus was out there telling people, the resurrection's already happened. You missed it. Now that's doctrinal error. We can't compromise with doctrinal error and say, oh, we need to be more tolerant. He just has a different theological view. That's why you don't see Brother Henry up here clamoring for us to join the National Council of Churches. Because there's, they have some pretty big doctrinal differences from what we hold as Baptists. <coughs> Our doctrine needs to be based on Scripture. There's not only compromise in Christian doctrine, though, there's a compromise in Christian charity. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, it mentions Alexander. It says that Alexander the coppersmith is mentioned as somebody that's done the apostle much evil. It says this, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. Now we don't know what else Alexander did, but one thing he did is he set out to harm the ministry. Now I've got to tell you that it breaks my heart when I hear about a church where someone has undermined the ministry of the pastor. And I heard about an example of this not long ago in one of our churches. And the music director there was brand new. And he came in, told everybody that the pastor had been there 20 years and had grown the church from, from virtually nothing to a fairly good-sized church in our BMW work. He says, that man needs to go. And he caused a split in the congregation, and eventually the pastor resigned. just happened recently. i got to tell you, personally, I don't like associate pastors. Now, that may surprise you. But most associate pastors, in my opinion, are, are like uh, Absalom sitting outside the gates telling everybody, well, if I was king, I'd be doing it differently. And you'd be amazed at the number of associate pastors who their, their one focus in life is to say, well, you know, if I was pastor, we'd do such and such. And I think as a rule, it's a real good idea to not have one of me. But I want you to know, and I, I'm, my conscience bears me witness, and I believe I can say this in all safety, you've never heard me say anything bad about my pastor. My one focus here has been to support him and to support his ministry because I believe he is God's man for this church, and we ought to follow his leadership. And when he tells us stuff we don't like, we ought to back up and say, hmm, maybe I'm wrong. And we ought to listen to him because God's granted him wisdom and God's given him a vision and he keeps us on course, and he keeps us on track, and we need to support him in every way possible. Let us not compromise in our Christian charity. Let us also not compromise in worldly behavior. The Scripture tells us as Christians that we're to be a peculiar people. That means we ought to be a little different from the world. If you don't like that word peculiar, then just think about this passage from Romans 12. All of you should know by heart. Every kid going through a wilderness has to memorize it. 
It says, Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Folks, we don't need to be like the world. We don't need to be more worldly so we become a seeker-friendly church. We don't need to invite worldly entertainment here so we get the lost in here because the purpose of the church is not to get the lost to come in. It's to edify the believers so the the saved will go out and do the ministry. We have to be careful that we don't compromise with worldliness. So the gospel then spreads by love. Let's remember that. The gospel has to start in the law. So when you hear our pastor preaching a sermon on the righteousness and the holiness of God, there's a reason for it. The gospel saves by grace. We will never do anything enough to impress God to let us through the gates of heaven because it's only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that any of us will be there and have everyone look at us with stunned surprise. And the gospel sings praise to the glory of God because we exist for the glory of God. We need to remember all those things, but we must also remember the gospel is shipwrecked by compromising doctrine, by compromising love, not loving, and by compromise with the world. God help us to be a church of the gospel ministry and to keep that focus forever. Let's stand, and as Brother Phil leads us in a song, I want to invite you to do one thing tonight. We're in a, we're in a seminal time in the life of our church. What that means is we're in a critical moment in the history of South Park Baptist Church where decisions are being made and godly men are trying to decide Uh, what to build and when to build it and how to uh, to pray for it and make sure that the Lord provides the funds that we can honor Him. And we've got to keep our focus. We've got to make sure that we stay on the right path and God's given us a godly leader to follow. But I want you to do something tonight. I want you just to pray. Maybe join me here at this altar. Just pray God will keep us free from distractions and that God will protect the love and the charity in this church that God will raise up more young people like these who will go and dedicate their lives to service, not just on annual mission trips, but that it will become a way of life for them to serve others and show the love of Jesus Christ. If that's your heart tonight, would you just join me in prayer at the altar as Brother Phil sings?